This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. Hello and welcome to May's episode of Radio Astronomy. I'm Elizabeth Pearson, news editor on Sky at Night magazine, and I'm joined in the studio today by staff writer Ian Todd. Hello. And production editor Dave Golder. Hello. Coming up later in this episode, we'll be talking to Professor Sanjeev Gupta, a planetary geologist at Imperial College London, who's investigating Mars's geological past using the Curiosity rover. And we'll tell you our top stargazing tip for this month's sky. But now we're going to take a look back at uh, the current issue and what we found out whilst we were putting together at the May issue of the magazine. Um, and I actually found out a lot of information that would have been very useful to me about eight months ago when I did my first ever uh, astronomy travel trip over to the States. Um, uh, this month we've got a, a big feature about what to take with you when you're going abroad with your telescope and your equipment. Hmm. Yeah, I've often wondered, like, um, you get all these amazing images of, you know, you know, from the, the Chilean Atacama Desert, and if you really wanted to kind of make a proper use of dark skies like that, you'd really want to bring, you know, a ridiculous scope with you and your mm. DSLR camera and your CCD or whatever and, you know, a nice mount to track everything. Yeah. But, you know... I, can you even fit all that stuff on a plane? Um, <laughs> the, 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 the advice you always get given is try and put as much as you can in your hold, uh, hand luggage rather than your hold luggage because then you can keep an eye on it, um, which is what I did. And then I, I think that potentially my, my I couldn't actually lift up my bag um, <laughs> over my head, which means I'm not technically supposed to have taken it on the plane. Um, but luckily, somebody very nicely put it in the overhead bin for me. Um, <laughs> yeah, because you, you were off um, viewing the... Uh, the Eclipse. Yes, um, uh, I went to see the uh, eclipse in August this year, last year. Where was that? Um, so it was there was a massive eclipse that went right the way across the US from coast to coast, um, and I ended up uh, seeing it in the middle of a random field in Nebraska, which was not where I meant to see it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I had to go uh, sort of running around trying to find the clouds, and so I took you know my my big camera so that I could take lots of pictures. Um, I took a solar telescope with me, which had to come with a mount and everything like that, and so all of that had to go into my hand luggage so it didn't get damaged because it's you know a sort of like seven hundred pound piece of telescope. Scope that I didn't want to break. Um, so, so yes, there's so lots you, of. You basically took along one pair of knickers then. Yeah, basically. <laughs> <laughs> it's like just don't look in my hold luggage. There's like nothing there. <laughs> it's all in my hand luggage. But yes, yeah, so if, if you are thinking about uh, making a trip to to go and take advantage of some dark skies anywhere, or uh, even if it's something that you think you might do at some point in the future, I, I really recommend picking up um, looking at the Have Scope Will Travel feature. It was very useful. Right. Well, I. I 
there's two running themes in this issue um, and I think I think Ian's going to touch on the other running theme but uh, <laughs> I, I, I am in the Jupiter corner mm-hmm. uh, with uh, Jupiter in opposition in May um, and uh, of course that means loads of uh, loads of astronomers will be chasing its moons around um, so uh, they, they throw their shadows onto the disc and uh, they're chasing them at one point and then they're following them at another point and everybody gets very excited and uh, moon spotting up there <laughs> um, I got more excited though about, uh, about all the Juno cam stuff that's been coming out because we've got a massive feature on uh, the Juno mission mm. and how it's it's turned Jupiter into a media star. Mm. <laughs> it's, it's, it's now it's now literally a superstar, even though it's a planet. Yeah, um, it's. I've, I've always been amazed, like with the moon stuff. I've always been amazed that you can see the shadow of a moon on another planet. That just blows my mind. Um, the fact that we can do that. Um, but also all these Juno images that have been coming in because we're so used to seeing Jupiter from the side on. And most of these pictures are coming from above or from really weird angles. And it's so weird to kind of see this this planet that you thought you knew from a completely different perspective. That's right, yeah, because it's, it's such an iconic planet that you're, you're used to seeing, you know, the, the bands and the great red spot. But because of the, the, the polar orbit of the, of the Juno spacecraft, yeah, as you say, yes, it's all kind of clouds and polar storms and things like that. But like as the, as the feature points out, we've, we've learned so much about the, the storms and the aurora and the magnetic field of the planet um, just through this, this mission. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, from scientific level I mean so much has been learned that we've never didn't know and didn't even think about with in terms of producer um, so it's actually changing what scientists think of the planet mm. um, so you know there's loads of new uh, stuff out there to discover um, but then also the public are getting on board and it's like a great PR campaign for the planet you know mm. because with Juno Cam it's like basically making all the pictures that uh, Juno Cam is sending back available to the public to process themselves and it's like what, what do you come up you know what are they coming up with and they're coming up with some brilliant stuff and some balmy stuff um, some crazy <laughs> stuff um, but it's great there's about 210 pages of it now on on, on the site mm. and uh, I was just going to say it's a bit weird talking about talking about stuff like this um, in a podcast because nobody can see the images so <laughs> I'm going I'm to show you a couple of random images to these two and they've got to say exactly what the first thing that comes into their mind so mm. what's that? that Look, it looks like sound waves or something weird like that, or like ripples in a pond. Uh, to me, it looks like, you know, when you watch the Blue Planet and they go right down to the bottom of the sea where, uh, where, the, where no light can get, it looks like some kind of like luminescent swordfish. Yeah, I can see that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I was thinking Blue Planet quite a lot with these as well. Yeah. Hang on. Here's, an, here's another one. Uh, that, it's purple. <laughs> Why is Jupiter purple? <laughs> That's what Juno Cam achieves. It looks really shiny, which is weird because it's made of gas. It looks, looks like maybe if you mixed red wine and milk in a bowl and it all curdled. Oh, that sounds horrible. <laughs> um, we could go on all day. Let me let me pick one more of the more extreme ones. Hang on. Ah, uh, oh, there's a classic. Um, that looks like the personification, uh, the the sort of imagization of my opinion of the sixties. <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> that is properly psychedelic. Yeah, it looks like um, an infrared image of a bird's eye. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. Or like one of those, you know, sort of when they like showing um, like 
people doing re- like in a petri dish with cells and things. Yeah, kind of yeah. looks like one of those. I can see yeah. that. I can see that. Anyway, if you're wondering what the hell we're talking about, you need to pick up our latest issue because we got um, a great little gallery of um, uh, images in there from Juno Cam, um, and also uh, in our uh, issue 146 last year, um, the July issue, I think it was last year, we had a, another Juno Cam gallery. So you could order that through back issues if you wanted, or try and pick it up somewhere. Um, and if you want to check online, uh, you need to go to www. Missionjuno.swri.edu slash junocam. I hope you're taking notes, so that took me ages to get it right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so it's a bit of a a Jupiter special, this issue, but also a bit of a Mars special. Uh, And as part of the bonus content, to kind of tie in with uh, Ezzy's feature this month, which is about the the InSight mission, which is this new new mission to to Mars. Um, I've been speaking to Bruce Bannard, uh, the principal investigator of the InSight mission, so you can watch the the video interview on uh, our bonus content. But the InSight mission is really interesting because usually when we think of missions to Mars, we think of maybe perhaps the uh, orbiters that kind of analyze um, gases in the atmosphere or the rovers that kind of look at the Martian geology so it's kind of the atmosphere or the surface of Mars but this InSight mission is going to actually be drilling down deep below the surface and it's kind of been described as NASA as uh, taking Mars's pulse and temperature mm-hmm. um, so it's going to do things like um, measure the seismic uh, vibrations which are called Mars quakes I love that I love the fact that maybe as we <laughs> discover more quakes on different planets we'll have more quakes so like Io quakes or <laughs> Venus know, quakes Venus quakes or whatever that's great um, and this this will help it work out the, the thickness and densities of the layers before uh, below Mars Mars's surface uh, and one of the instruments is called uh, the heat Flow and Physical Properties Probe, or HP3, and it's going to hammer up to five metres into the ground and measure heat flowing out of the planet, and this will hopefully reveal why when Mars was forming, um, it, it cooled very shortly after formation, whereas, whereas Earth didn't. So kind of showing, um, basically learning more about the formation of rocky planets. Mm. Um, but yeah, it, it was it kind of ultimately to time with your feature as. Yeah, it's it was one of those things that I... Because everybody, when you think of missions to Mars, you're thinking it tends to, and I hate to use this word, you think of the sexy missions, the the (laughs) rovers. Um, But actually, InSight is going to sit in the same place. It's going to be incredibly still. um, And it will be able to tell us about the entire planet. So even though these rovers are going all over the place... Insight will be looking at, at more of it, at more of the, um, it's uh, technically, it's not the Mars's geology, it's the aerology, I think is how you pronounce mm. it, because um, geo means Earth and Aries means Mars, but nobody calls it that because it's confusing. So we've got Mars quakes <laughs> instead of earthquakes, but we've got geology, not aerology, because we're scientists and people like to be confusing when you're naming things. <laughs> <laughs> the other really interesting thing that kind of... Um, grab my attention about this mission is um, we're always hearing about whenever uh, a new exoplanet is discovered one of the ways you can kind of work out what sort of a planet it is if you can't see it um, very clearly is um, you can observe how it wobbles as it's as it's uh, orbiting its its host star, and this can tell you about the density and whether or not it's got a molten core and things like that. But they're going to be they're going to do that on Mars. But obviously, mm. they'll actually have a rover, or well, not a rover, but they'll actually have the uh, the InSight um, spacecraft will actually be on Mars, and it's going to um, because they've got the, the precise location of where it is on the planet, they can precisely measure Mars's wobble as it mm. as it orbits uh, the sun, uh, and this will tell us more about kind of its you know internal density. Yeah, the the uh, analogy that I got told was it's it's like if you spin a hard-boiled egg and a raw egg, the raw egg wobbles more, and it's kind of the more liquid you have inside, the more stuff wobbles. Ah, nice. I like that one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's 
just crystallised it all for me now. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, sp- speaking of um, Martian geology, in this week's interview, um, I spoke to uh, Sanjeev Gupta, who is a geology professor at Imperial College London uh, and a member of NASA's Curiosity mission uh, on Mars. And re- regular viewers of the Sky at Night um, will recognise Professor Gupta from the April episode. Um, and I started off by asking Professor Gupta exactly what the Curiosity rover is doing on the Red Planet and what we can learn from studying Martian rocks. The first task of this rover is really trying to work out whether Mars uh, might have had the conditions suitable for life in its ancient past. So it's in some ways, it's uh, you know, previous Mars missions were searching for water. Um, and what this rover is doing is trying to find out whether ancient Mars had conditions that might have been habitable for ancient microbial life. So in some ways, it's a stepping stone to the discovery of life. Of course, we'd gladly be happy to discover evidence for life, but, um, you know, it's quite a difficult task. And so our first task is, you know, um, you know, are the right rocks and are the right environmental conditions present on ancient Mars where we're searching to look for life or are we wasting our time looking at Mars? Mm. Um, so what sort of instruments um, does it have? And also, what's its kind of day-to-day routine? What, what does it actually look for and, and, and what's it actually analysing? Okay, so we have a huge host of instruments on board the rover. It really is a mobile laboratory um, looking at a variety of different things. So firstly, um, there's all the engineering instruments on board because without the engineering stuff, we wouldn't be able to do science. So there's a lot of engineering cameras on board the rover. Um, There's hazard cameras, two hazard cameras, both on the front and the rear. Um, And we have these navigation cameras on the mast of the rover, and these produce stereo images, the navigation cameras. Uh, We produce a stereo mesh, so a digital elevation model of the landscape in front of us. And this is what the rover drivers, called the rover planners, actually use to uh, produce a pathway uh, to drive basically on the surface of Mars. And this is probably the most important instruments, if you like. The rover itself is powered by a plutonium battery, um, so uh, uh, powered by radioactivity. Um, and then there's a whole host of science instruments. So, firstly, we have all the cameras on board. Uh, the geology cameras are what we use to characterize the geology of the rover. These are stereo cameras, again, on the mast, they take colour images. And at the end of the arm, we also have a hand lens camera that can take close-up images of the rock so we can get the detailed texture of the rocks, etc. And then we have all these instruments that can characterise the chemistry of the rocks that we encounter and the soils that we encounter. So firstly, we have a laser, again, on top of the mast that can shoot a laser beam about seven metres. Um, what it does, it produces a plasma in the rocks and then there's spectrometers uh, in the mast and ChemCam that can actually look at the elemental chemistry. So it's semi-quantitative and the, it's kind of a survey instrument trying to see, if, you know, what sort of the chem- approximate chemistry of the rocks are. And then we have a bunch of other instruments that can basically look at the more detailed chemistry. And then probably the two most, you know, the game changers as far as this rover is concerned, as this is entirely new for Mars, is that um, at the end of the arm, we have a whole uh, bit of kit that we can drill into the surface of Mars. And this is entirely new, never drilled on another uh, rocky body elsewhere away from Earth. Uh, obviously, on the moon, we collected samples that astronauts brought back, can't do that on Mars yet. And so we drill a sample 
up to seven centimeters deep into the Martian surface. And there's a whole sample handling facility that takes the rock powder. And that rock powder is then transferred to two major instruments. One is uh, chemin, which is X-ray diffraction. And this gives us true mineralogy of, of the Martian rocks. And prior to this, you know, you know, other instruments give us the elemental composition, but we kind of have to work out what the possible minerals to make up that elemental composition would have been. Here, this we get true mineralogy. And again, this is really important because it's quite difficult to do it from just the elemental composition. And the other instrument is a huge box called SAM, Sample Analysis of Mars. And this is just an incredible instrument. And what it does is it's a set of three uh, mass spectrometers it's doing different things. What uh, Some of it's actually looking for methane in the Martian atmosphere and measuring uh, other gases in the Martian atmosphere. But the key instrument in this mass spectrometer in this is um, basically takes the rock powder, it puts it into um, crucibles and heats the rock powder up to very, very high temperatures. And that vapor is that's given off is then taken off by a helium stream and analyzed in the mass spectrometers, in the GCMS, et cetera, gas chromatography, et cetera. And we're looking for the um, composition of these gases, which is telling us about something about the um, chemical composition of the rocks. And of, of course, obviously what we're after is uh, complex organic compounds in the, uh, in the, in the rocks that we're analyzing. Hmm. I mean, it's it's really interesting because you're obviously collecting all this data, and and it obviously has to be analysed by by humans. Um, and but you're obviously using the the same techniques, I will I presume that you would use on Earth. So I'm just wondering how how transferable the kind of Earth centric geology is to to Mars. How how similar is the is the Martian terrain to to Earth? Well, it looks very similar. Um, it, you know, I, I've worked a lot as a geologist in desert regions around the world, in Egypt and the Western US. And, you know, yeah. <laughs> apart from the, the, the signs of uh, vegetation that you still get in deserts, um, it looks very, very similar. So the rock types and the arid environment make it look very similar. And uh, also a lot of the techniques we're using are very, very similar. So the hand lens camera, I mean, when I'm in the field, um, I, I permanently have attached around my neck a uh, hand lens. Um, actually, lots of geologists wear theirs all the time, but not me. <laughs> but um, in fact, actually, probably the, the one key geological tool that we don't have that would actually be a game changer for us, but would be very difficult to do on Mars, is that geologists rely very heavily on being able to make uh, sections of a rock and being able to look at those sections, you know, wafer thin, and look at them through microscopes. And obviously, we don't have that capability. And so it actually limits our ability to interpret Martian rocks uh, because of that capability. So we have this fantastic geochemistry analysis we can do, but some of the key details that we need to know about rocks come from textures that you can only observe down a microscope. And we can't do that. And this is, you know, this is basically a bit of fundamental geology that we've been able to do on Earth for, you know, over 100 years. And we can't do this on Mars yet. <laughs> yes, uh, presumably um, the, the entire job would be a lot easier if we could actually send uh, human geologists to Mars. Oh, yes, it would be really very easy. Um, firstly, obviously, we can't do real-time geology on Mars. So 
um, you know, we, it, it takes 14 minutes for a signal to go to Mars and come back. So obviously we don't do real-time charges. What we do is we upload a whole day of commands that are then carried out on Mars. And obviously this limits what we can do. It's a little bit slower. And again, um, a, a rover, uh, it's pretty nimble curiosity, but it's not as nimble as what a, a, a geologist would be like. And there's many places a geol- uh, uh, the rover can't actually get up to. It can't skirt around boulders to get to a cliff face or climb up. So, um, you know, at the moment, that's all we can do. But I envisage a day that, uh, you know, geologists would actually go to Mars. Astronaut geologists would go to Mars and map the terrain, be able to make immediate decisions on what samples to collect, etc. Yes, uh, it would be great if it could happen... Um within our lifetime at least um, but that's not I suppose to detract from from all the things that we have learnt via via uh, rovers like Curiosity and, and one of the the major things that, that humans have discovered about Mars is the fact that water um, once flowed we found like river, riverbeds I mean th- th- that must have been a complete uh, a complete mind-blowing discovery at the time uh, strangely enough we encountered these rocks and I, re- I absolutely remember the day the images came down. We're looking at them. Yeah, wow, look, we can see these rounded pebbles. And we're kind of like, oh, that's cool. <laughs> that's great. And it, it, took a, it took a few days for it to, us to really dawn how significant this was because this was, you know, the first. I mean, obviously, we had all this orbital imagery that clearly suggested that there must have been, you know, flows of water on, on the surface of Mars. But, you know, it's orbital imagery. It's not something you can touch. And then we saw these pebble beds with beautiful rounded pebbles that, you know, can't be moved by wind-blown activity, etc. So we saw these, and it took a while for it to sink in that actually this was the first in situ evidence for water flow on the surface of Mars. And it was interesting because when we wrote the paper, um, I think the reviewers said that we were being very conservative in our interpretations. <laughs> and that's not normally the case with papers. You know, papers, you probably usually big it up a little bit. But we're being very careful and not overselling it. And people basically, the reviewers kind of said, well, actually, this is a pretty significant discovery. <laughs> um, do, do you think that uh, if, if there ever was life on Mars at, at some stage in its history, is, is there a chance that, that all evidence of that could be wiped out? Is, is there a chance that um, life may have existed on Mars, but the passage of time has simply gotten, gotten rid of all the um, potential evidence? So that's a really important point that people uh, often don't realise. There's this idea that somehow if we don't find life, that's it. It never existed. Um, but actually, you know, we're looking at rocks that are older than rocks that we can find preserved on Earth. Um, And when we look at the earliest evidence for life on Earth, it's actually often pretty controversial. You know, you see these bits of, you know, evidence, either chemical signatures or sort of morphological signatures in rocks, and there's always arguments. You know, people will publish a paper and then people will say, no, that's rubbish, you can't say that, etc. So it's not an easy task. And the big problem is that, Whilst early Earth and early Mars may have been teeming with life, it may not have been preserved, particularly with Mars, um, because it hasn't had an atmosphere. It's been bombarded by radiation. Um, The problem is that radiation may have damaged any any organic matter preserved in those rocks. That's one reason why, um, you know, we've got two major rover missions to Mars upcoming. Uh, the big one for us in Britain is the ExoMars mission, ExoMars rover mission that's launching in 2020, landing in 2021. And that's actually going to have a drill that's going to drill significantly deeper into the surface of Mars, they say up to two meters. 
And the reason for that is that it's going to go go be deeper than the radiation damage zone. So, you know, Curiosity drills up to six or seven centimeters, but that's still within the radiation damage zone. And these rocks at the surface have been, you know, exposed to radiation for billions of years. So if we can get that deep into the uh, Martian surface, we may encounter rocks where uh, the organics may have been preserved, not been damaged by radiation, so we have a better chance of discovering evidence for life, past life. Incredible. And in, in terms of um, Curiosity, it's it's just past a pretty big milestone. But what's what's next for the future of Curiosity? Um, is, is, there a, is there a timeline for when the mission is going to end? And is it going to be doing anything um, significantly different? So actually, we, we're just getting to the most exciting part of the mission. We're actually getting to the place where we always intended to get to. And um, it's taken us a long time, partly because we've discovered exciting geology on the way, which has provided the context. So that's really important for us is that it's great if you discover, you know, imagine you discovered rocks with life in them or evidence for ancient life. But without the context, you don't, uh, you don't, you can't explain it. So the key bit of what we do, and particularly my task, is reconstructing the paleoenvironmental context. So we've had a long drive, partly through that and partly through, obviously, we have, as all missions have issues, etc. we're slowed down, we don't know the terrain, the terrain's been rough. And we're just getting to this place where we see this abundant signature of clay minerals in the rocks. Clay minerals are hydrated minerals, which indicate interaction of water with rock. And we just don't know what the ancient environment of these clay minerals was like. And then we see an abrupt transition into um, rocks with a very distinct sulfate signature. And again, we don't know what these environments were like. They might have been drying lakes, um, and we have no idea. And so it's really exciting for us to be able to reconstruct that. And, you know, the exciting thing is that from a long distance, you can't tell. You have to get up close to these rocks to be able to look at them and re reconstruct, work out what that ancient environment looked like, what that landscape looked like, and paint that picture of the landscape. And so from here, from our current vantage point, we can kind of see these rocks and the excitement's ahead of us, um, but we don't know what the answer is. It sounds like there's uh, plen plenty more to discover on Mars, um, and we look forward very much to uh, finding what, what you and your, your colleagues discover. Um, but Professor Gupta, thanks very much for speaking to me um, today. Thank you very much indeed. That was Professor Sanjeev Gupta. Find out more about how the geology of Mars is uncovering the planet's mysterious past in the May issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine. There's lots to see in the night sky this month, which you can find out all about in our Sky Guide in this month's issue. But if there's one thing you should really see in May, it's Jupiter, the king of planets, which is visible in the early evening twilight as the brightest object low down in the southeast. It stays visible right through the night, getting higher in the sky, and even a small telescope will show you its four largest moons, which are really a surprising and captivating sight. So that's it from us this month. You can find out more about which of Jupiter's moon is which in the May issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine, where we also preview NASA's InSight mission to investigate Mars's interior, remember the remarkable life of Stephen Hawking, take a look at the momentous discoveries the Juno missions is making around Jupiter, and not forgetting our regular sections that will help you unlock the wonders of the night sky, find the right equipment to observe it with, and discover the best things to see after dark this month. From all of us here at BBC Sky at Night magazine, goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Jack Fletcher. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com 
or simply head to iTunes.